Thank you to you all for your prayers for yesterday. The men's conference went very well. Uh, nice drive out to Valley, uh, except for the last last few minutes. It got pretty crazy uh, weather-wise, but fortunately it was all all good on the way home and everything went well. Uh, I think there was about 25 or 30 men out for this conference and it was nice to uh, participate with two other pastor friends uh, of mine as we taught on uh, a man and his church, a man and his family, and uh, a man and his Lord. And uh, it was very encouraging. So thank you all for your prayers. This morning, uh, we come back to 1 Thessalonians. And um, uh, over the past two weeks, we have been uh, considering ministry. Uh, we began our year by thinking about what uh, does a godly ministry look like. Uh, thankfully for us, Paul had uh, explained to the Thessalonians the ministry that he and uh, Silas and Timothy had had, and as we considered that, we learned about what our ministry here uh, at Gospel Light had uh, was all about. Now, before that, you might recall that Paul began his letter with words of thanksgiving. He began by telling the church in Thessalonica why he was thankful for them. And primarily, the two reasons were because of their conversion and because of their imitation. He was uh, thankful for them because God had saved them. And he was thankful uh, because God had used them to be an example to others around. Now, um, he spends all the first chapter thanking God for the Thessalonians. And then in chapter 2 and verse 1, uh, right through to verse 12, he talks about a godly ministry. And now you might expect him to go on to another subject, but he doesn't do that at all. Instead, he goes back to what he was doing when he started the letter. Uh, it, it should uh, uh, appeal to us, if we haven't figured this out, that Paul is really grateful for the church in Thessalonica. I mean, Paul is grateful, I think, for all of the church, but I don't know if you've picked this up, but it seems like he's extra thankful for the church in Thessalonica. He has a deep, deep love for the church in Thessalonica. And I, I mean, again, not as though I'm saying he, he's playing favorites necessarily, um, but for whatever reason, and maybe we'll figure it out as we continue through the book, he, he is really grateful uh, for the church in, in Thessalonica. And you know, that, that's hopeful for us, right? Like, his letters are different. And when you go through Galatians, you know, it's, it's very different how he's addressing the church in Galatia. When he's uh, addressing the Corinthians, it's very different. And, and, you know, Colossians, Thessalonians, all these things, there's things that play into this that, that help us understand different aspects uh, of how we are to function as the church. And so uh, a, great, a great emphasis here in Paul's letter is his love for the church, something we're going to, again, talk about next week as I began to prepare that sermon already. Now, as we uh, get into our verses for today, which are going to be 13 through 16 of chapter 2, um, Paul is um, going to expand on something that he said already as he uh, goes into this time of thanksgiving again for the church. And, and, it, and it has to do with the word that has come to them. So he spoke in chapter 1, verse 5, about how the word had come to them. But now in our text, the emphasis is not going to be the word coming to them. It's going to be them receiving the word, right? Like I deliver the word to you and you receive the word. There, there's two things going on there. And so he's already talked about how the word has been given to them. Now he's going to talk about how they receive the word. And as we look at this, uh, we'll, we will learn this morning how we ought to respond to the word of God, how we have responded to the word of God. And then we'll also consider uh, how God's enemies respond to the word of God. So this is, this is the word of God. First Thessalonians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. 
Starting at verse 13, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. The testimony of God's word is that there are two kinds of people in this world and only two kinds of people. It doesn't matter if you are young or old. Uh, It doesn't matter if you are male or female. It doesn't matter what color your skin is or where you live or where you were brought up. It doesn't matter what your interests are. It doesn't matter whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. It doesn't matter uh, how you were brought up or who your parents are. You are one of these two kinds of people. Either you receive the word of God and you accept the word of God or you don't which means either you love Christ and his church or you don't. There is no third category. There is no uh, alternative option. There is no neutral ground. You are a child of God or you are an enemy of God. Only two options. In our text, we learn that Paul is grateful that the Thessalonians were in the first group. But he also wanted them to be aware of the second group. So we are going to get into our text this morning, these uh, few verses and, and what I hope we will do is we will learn about these two groups of people and, and so that our gratitude would increase that we are in the first group, but also so that we will know how to deal rightly with the second group. Because I fear that because we often minimize or forget this second group and what they are, uh, we don't interact with them as we ought to. We don't respond to them as as we ought to. And so, so uh, hear me now. Uh, it, it's, it's really good to be reminded of who we are and to be encouraged by who we are and how we have responded because of God's grace. But, but we cannot forget who we were uh, and who everybody else who is not in this group is. So we interact with them rightly. So as we begin here, verse 13, uh, Paul, as I said, returns to his gratitude for the Thessalonians, and he, he connects it with something that he has uh, addressed right out of the gates when it concerns a godly ministry. If you remember, the very first thing we talked about for a godly ministry is that it has to have the right purpose. And that right purpose, as we saw, is to make disciples. And we knew, know this because Paul uh, preached the gospel to the Thessalonians. The gospel was central and foundational to this ministry because it's through the preaching of the gospel that disciples are made. So when he says, when he refers to the word that you received, he is talking about the gospel. Now, the gospel is not complicated, not even a little bit. Uh, some people think the gospel is complicated. I can't tell you. How many times I have asked Christians, uh, what is the gospel? Before you become a member of this church, that is a question that is asked of you. What is the gospel? And you would be surprised how many people freeze up when, when that question is asked. Not free up, freeze up. Um, now, I mean, I don't know. Uh, people have told me that I can be intimidating at times. I don't think I am. 
but maybe it's intimidating for your pastor to ask you this. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I just want to be a member of the church. I didn't know I was going to have to answer questions. I don't know. But I can tell you, more times than not, when I ask somebody the gospel, uh, they struggle to, to tell it to me. Um, I don't know, maybe they think I'm looking for a specific answer, but, well, I am, actually. (laughs) But maybe they think I'm looking for a very complicated answer, which I'm not. Uh, Paul lays it out so clearly when he tells the church in Corinth that this is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the gospel, and that is not complicated, not even a little. So if you are ever asked what the gospel is, You just go ahead and say exactly what Paul says. It's not complicated. He tells us twice that this is in accordance with the scripture. And and that is what makes the gospel good news. That that the source of this good news is God. It is God's good news, right? That's what makes it so, so good. He delivered it to us. And this is something that the Thessalonians know because Paul tells them that we also uh, thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of God, but what it really, or sorry, not as the word of man, but what it really is, the word of God. That is the right way to respond to the gospel, to receive it and accept it as the word of God. Because if you receive it and accept it as the word of God, you acknowledge God's authority and, and you respond to it rightly. So, so to receive something as the word of God is to acknowledge that it is authoritative. And as Paul notes, it was right of them to receive it as the word of God, because guess what? That's what it is. I mean, it wouldn't be right to accept it as the word of God if that's not what it is. Uh, don't, don't accept the Apocrypha as the word of God. It's not the word of God. Uh, don't accept the pseudepigrapha as the word of God. These are books that have been added to the scriptures that some people count as the word of God, but they're not the word of God. Read them, enjoy them, maybe even find some truths in them, but don't read them as the word of God. Uh, enjoy good books, good, good books about the Bible, but acknowledge they're not the word of God. And so don't just take everything hook, line, and sinker that you read, even if they're authors that you, you trust. Just this past week, a pastor that I have benefited from greatly came out as saying something that was not right. And everybody jumps jumps on the guy. And it's like, hold on a second here. This guy is not God. And the things he says are not the word of God. So don't accept them as the word of God. Read them with, with discernment. But when you read the Bible, you accept it as the word of God because that is what it is. If it wasn't, don't, but it is, so receive it as the word of God. If you think about it, when the Thessalonians heard Paul preach the gospel, there are many ways that they could have responded to the word of God. And, and you've probably heard some people respond to you this way uh, when you've shared the gospel with them. They might say, you know what, Paul, that's a really nice sounding message, but you know, not really for me. That's good for you. You, 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 you appreciate that, but... What are they saying when they say, it's good for you, but not for me, right? That, that's not authoritative. That's not the word of God. You, you enjoy it. That, that's a nice little crutch for you all, but, you know, keep that to yourself. Or, or maybe they might respond, you know, Paul, that's a really hurtful message. We don't appreciate you coming around here telling us we're sinners. 
uh, we want to keep living lives the way that we're living now, so thank you very much, but no, you, you, you take that back. We don't want it. Or they could have said, Paul, that's, and this is kind of a message you hear from atheists quite often. I, I heard this just the other day when I was listening to a debate. They say, that's a really silly message, Paul, and, and we're not going to be uh, fooled by these ramblings. So, so, no, no thank you. I mean, I could have you know, provided for you 7, 10, 15 more responses that people might give to the gospel, but they, they don't respond that way. No, they, they respond in one particular way. By acknowledging that, that Paul did not make this message up, this, this message, though it is a message spoken by men, they recognize that it is a message from God. They recognize that God has given them this, this message, and thus this message is authoritative and trustworthy and should be received and accepted. You see, to receive the message is not just to hear it, and it's not even just to believe that it's true. It's to receive it and accept it as authoritative and trustworthy. That, that is the, the first step concerning those who uh, respond to the word of God rightly. They, they receive it as the word of God, but that's not where it stops. You see, when the word of God is received rightly uh, as the word of God, as authoritative and trustworthy, something begins to happen. Something begins to happen. We, we come to God just as we are, as we sang, but we do not remain just as we are. And, and if somebody does remain just as they are, then we should assume that they have not actually come to God and received the word of God rightly. Because for all those who receive and accept the word of God, something begins to happen when they do that. They, they change. Paul says, after speaking of the word of God that they've received, he adds, which is at work in you believers? Which is at work in you believers? Now, first of all, I want to note something here. Uh, that the saints here are called believers. I have heard people tell me it's offensive uh, to refer to Christians as believers because then you're kind of singling out those who are not believers, and that's not really nice. But we actually have justification in Scripture. Scripture here calls Christians believers. It's entirely right to refer to Christians as believers uh, because it, it defines who it is that they are. Believers are those who receive and accept the gospel as God's word, and they respond to it by, guess what? By believing, uh, which is to say they trust in Jesus, that he, he died for them, that he rose for them, that he redeemed them. They put their faith in him, knowing that they could never make themselves right in the sight of, sight of God. They believe that Jesus received the wrath due to him and imputed uh, due to, to us, and then imputed his righteousness to us. So God's people are believers because we we believe. It, it defines what we do, uh, what we are, who we are. We believe in, in Jesus. But once you, you believe in Jesus, once you are justified by faith, that is when the change begins. Uh, because once you are justified, you are also sanctified positionally, which is to say you are now set apart from the world and you are now a member of God's kingdom. You are now to be used for God's purposes. Prior to your justification, you are living for your own purposes. After your justification, you are now set apart unto God's purposes. You are once sanctified. But then the long process of progressive sanctification begins. An entire life of change begins where you become more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. And Paul tells us how that change happens, how God works to sanctify us. It is through the word of God, which is at work in us. Now, interestingly enough, um, 
as I was reminded well by a pastor yesterday, grammar is very important. He was talking about the tense of verbs and how that was very important, which it is. But, but grammar is very important. Um, and in some cases, we need to look and consider uh, what is being said. Uh, when he says here, uh, the word of God, which is at work in us, the ESV understands that it is the word that is at work in us. But if you look at the Greek grammar here, it could also be translated uh, as the word of God, God being the one who is at work in us. Now, as I said, uh, grammar is very important in most cases, uh, except this one. Uh, Which is it? Is it God who is at work in us? Or is it his word which is at work in us? I like how one commentator deals with this. He says, the question of whether God works or his word does rests on a fine, fine distinction since clearly God works through his word in the lives of believers. In other words, there's no point of fussing about whether it's the word that works or God who works because it is God who works through his word. And I know you're all sitting there going, well, then why did you bring up grammar? Because I love to bring up grammar. It's very important, except in this case. So, so it is through God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, that God works in our lives through his word. And we see this if you think about Uh, how the word is used in our lives from the beginning to the end. So let me give you four steps of the word at work in us and how the Holy Spirit is involved. First of all, it was the Holy Spirit who ensured that the words that are written here are God's words, right? Uh, Peter tells us that the Holy Spirit carried along the men who wrote the word of God. So so they were were the man's words, uh, they were Paul's words, Uh, Paul didn't just enter a trance and then wake up and there was this letter to the Thessalonians. No, Paul wrote in Paul's style and Paul said the kind of words that Paul says. Sometimes, you know, in Philippians, he makes up a word. You know, this is this is we can see this is Paul's words. But because the Holy Spirit is at work in Paul, that's how we know that they're God's words. So the Holy Spirit begins by ensuring that the word that we have is God's word. We call this the doctrine of inspiration. But then it's also the Holy Spirit that uh, enables us to receive the word of God and put our faith in Christ. So apart from the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of the gospel, or you reading the gospel, you hearing the gospel, you seeing the gospel on on a YouTube video, whatever it is, uh, if the Holy Spirit doesn't work, you're not going to respond in faith. But if the Holy Spirit works in you, you will. Our confession, the 1689 Confession, says explains it this way. Our full persuasion... An assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the scriptures comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So first of all, the Holy Spirit ensures that the Bible we have is the word of God. Second of all, the Holy Spirit works within us so that we receive the word of God as the word of God. Thirdly, it is also the Holy Spirit who works in us as we read the word, helping us to understand it and apply it. And we learn this from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. And we refer to this as the doctrine of illumination. He illuminates the text so that we can understand it and apply it. And fourthly, fourthly, I know you thought we were done there. One more. It is the Spirit who works through the preaching of God's Word. If I, for a second, believed that the Spirit did not work through the preaching of the Word, I am closing up my Bible and I am going home. Because if the Spirit doesn't work, nothing is going to happen here. Sure, you might you know, learn some new things. 
You might uh, enjoy some things, but nothing's going to happen unless the Spirit works uh, through the preaching and teaching of his, his Word. And this is what we call, I bet you a word you might not know, we call this unction. Unction. I pray regularly for, for utterance that God will give me the words and for unction that the Spirit will work through those words. So if you think about it, you see that it is God who ensures that those who believe are changed. He, he does the changing. And while there are times where I wish I did the changing, uh, I'm glad that I don't, that he, he does. It's through his word that he changes uh, us. And this lines up, of course, with what Jesus prayed to his father for his disciples when he said, sanctify them in the truth. You know the next part. The word is, is truth. And this is exactly what Paul tells the Thessalonians, that God changes them. But he does it through his word, which means that if we want to walk in a manner worthy of God, which is what Paul says we must do, then the word of God must be what we are all about. Now, uh, I'm sure that uh, we would all agree that we want more change in our lives, right? If you are a Christian, I am sure uh, that you would not sit here and say, I'm good. I'm done. You know, I don't need more sanctification. I'm really okay. I, I, I really feel good about myself. Now, you may be encouraged by the sanctification in your life right now. There, there are people here this morning of all levels of sanctification, right? Some of you are, are far along, right? Some of you are far behind, and some of you are somewhere in the middle. Some of you have not struggled a lot with sin in the last week. Some of you have struggled with sin to no end in the last week. Some of you just kind of half and half and everywhere in between. Some of you have, have read your Bible diligently this week and sought to apply it. Some of you didn't pick up your Bible since last Sunday. And some of you are somewhere in the middle. You see, we're all at different places. We're all at different places. But regardless of where we're at, from the most holy person here to the least holy person, doesn't that sound weird? I, I bet you didn't like hearing that. That there is, there is a most holy person here and a least holy person here. I, I know that feels very strange to say. I, I, and when I say most holy, I don't say per, I mean perfectly holy. But uh, wherever you are on that, uh, and this is something Dave's going to talk about in, in a couple weeks just briefly, but you can never be satisfied with where you're at. You always have, because the second you're satisfied, what do you do, right? You kick your feet up and you, and you relax, right? So, so we all want to become more holy. We all want to hate sin more. Um, we all want to become more sanctified. We, we all want to become more like Jesus, right? That, that's got to be established. Now, uh, we did just pass into a new year. What are we at, 21st now? So three weeks ago. Um, and, and most often when we pass into a new year, sometimes uh, people get uh, involved in uh, reflecting on the year behind and making resolutions for the year ahead. And what I want us to know this morning is that if we want to grow, if we want 2024 to be more for the glory of God than 2023, if we want to grow more in holiness in 2024 than in 2023, that there is something that we can do. There, there is something, in fact, we must do if we want God to work in our lives, and it's quite simply to spend time in his word. Now, something uh, some of you know about me, um, I think I've mentioned this from the pulpit before, is that I don't like to be in situations where I don't know what to do. There, there's, there's, in fact, no situation I would uh, rather be in uh, less than a situation where I don't know what to do. I, I hate it. I've said it many times. I would rather be in a horrible situation and know what to do 
than to be in a situation where I don't know what to do. And, and I think some of you would, would agree with that, right? When you don't know what to do, it's very hard. If you know what to do and it's hard to do, you still, you can do it. But when you don't know what to do, what do you do? Now, I have good news for you this morning. Because if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to become more holy, if you want to become more Christ, like if you want to hate sin more, then your course of action is absolutely and overwhelmingly clear. If you want God to be more at work in your life, then you spend more time in God's word because that is what he works in our lives through. You study it, you, you take it in, you learn it, you apply it with your families as you worship God together each day. You hear it taught and preached when the church gathers and you read books about how to understand and apply it. In other words, we must live up to our name as Baptists because while you may or may not know this, Baptists are known for being people of the book. And we must live up to that name. We must be people of the book, people of the Bible, people who receive and accept it as God's authoritative and trustworthy word, those who believe in Christ and are indwelt by his spirit who works in our lives through his word. Now, be warned, uh, it will be a good life because you will be living the life that God wants you to live, uh, but it will not necessarily be an easy life. Uh, That was the case for the Thessalonians. Their lives were not made easier by God's word uh, and work in their lives. It it, it was made harder. If we look at verse uh, 14, he says, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now, if you recall, the church was born in in Judea, uh, and more particularly in Jerusalem. It was there from which the gospel was to go out, as we learn in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And and it was there where the church first experienced persecution. It was just as Jesus told his disciples, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So the Jews in Judea who turned to Christ in faith were persecuted by their fellow countrymen, Jews from Judea. And likewise, the saints in Thessalonica were persecuted by their fellow countrymen. Now, again, you might not be that think this is that big of a deal, but uh, the, the question here is, who did this persecution come from for the Thessalonians? Uh, it, it could be... That, that Paul was saying that the uh, persecution that came to you uh, came to you from Jews, just like the persecution that came in Judea, it came from the Jews as well. Uh, and it could be it just that he was saying, you know, just like the, the, the Jews, the Judeans persecuted uh, Jews, the Thessalonians persecuted Thessalonians. And that would kind of make sense too, because as you might recall, we've discussed how it seems as though the majority of the church in Thessalonica were uh, Gentiles, because remember, they turned from, from idols to God. Um, I, I tend to lean towards the fact that the persecution came from Jews, uh, because as one commentator notes, uh, we learn in Acts 17 that Paul was persecuted by Jews while in Thessalonica, and this commentator says, thus, it seems likely that such opponents of the gospel in Thessalonica, not content with Paul's dismissal, would have continued to oppose the church that Paul left behind. So, uh, as we'll be reminded of next week, Paul was run out of Thessalonica by Jews, and it could, uh, it could then mean that they were not happy that they just ran out Paul. They also wanted to persecute the Christians that he left 
behind them. Whether or not the persecution came from Jews or Gentiles, the saints in Thessalonica were hated and mistreated by other Thessalonians, by other countrymen. And the reason that they were persecuted, understand here, was because they received and accepted the word of God. So how you receive, how you respond to the word of God uh, will, will, will determine how you are treated because of the word of God, which is to say we should be prepared to be persecuted. We should be prepared to be persecuted, which is why it's so important when people come to Christ that we make very clear to them that they need to count the cost. We can't indicate that it's going to be a life of ease or a life of prosperity. We definitely don't want to say that. Well, it, it, it might. You might be prosperous in, in, in life as a Christian, uh, Rich Christians can get into heaven. It's hard, but they can. Um, you, you know, if you think about uh, history, and I'm not the biggest history buff outside of the scriptures, but if you think of history from the time of Christ till now, I think we can all recognize there's been times where the church was heavily persecuted and, and places where the church was heavily persecuted and times where it wasn't. Times where we could live at peace and, 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 and harmony with our neighbors and, and those who did not receive the word of God rightly. Uh, but but the, the bottom line, uh, as, as Paul tells us here, is you have to be prepared for persecution. You need to be prepared for people to mistreat you if you receive the word of God rightly. And so we should be prepared to be persecuted by fellow Canadians, uh, by friends, by neighbors, by coworkers, maybe even, even family members. We, we could be persecuted with. Now, uh, hear me now. Don't go looking for persecution. That's, that's dumb. Um, but be prepared for it. And, and don't be surprised when it comes. Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So let me just sum this up. This first group of people in the world are those who hear the gospel. They respond to the good news of God and they, uh, and they believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. They then begin a lifelong process of pursuing Christ's likeness by feeding on the word of God through which the Holy Spirit brings about change. And when they are mistreated because they claim of the name of Christ, when they are shamed for their faith or when they are ridiculed for their commitment to the truth of God, they're not surprised. But as noted, uh, there is a second group of people in the world, and we do need to spend some time thinking about them, so we will interact with them rightly. Now, the way we learn about this second group is through what Paul tells the Thessalonians about the Jews in his day. So look at verse 15. He says, for you suffered, so I'm going to start back in the first half of uh, verse 14, because that's where the sentence starts. He says, for you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. So there are two things that Paul says about the Jews of his day, uh, two things that they do. They kill and they drive out. They kill and they drive out. But those two things are both founded upon one thing. Uh, there's one thing that, that, that leads them to kill and to drive out, and that is hatred. So the Jews who handed Jesus over to the government and called for his crucifixion did so because they hated Jesus. I, I don't think that's any surprise to you all, right? You hand somebody over to the government and ask the government to kill them. Sure, you know, yeah, I would say that's motivated by, by hate. Um, 
you know, the Jews, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he did. And, and for them, as you recall, when you read through the Gospels, you see there was only one thing that was going to make them happy. Until Jesus was dead, they were going to continue on seeking uh, his harm. And, and, and likewise, he speaks about prophets, that they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Now, whether the prophets that Paul mentions are Christian prophets or uh, Old Testament prophets, now there's no more Christian prophets today, but there were in the first century. So whether he's talking about Christian prophets or Old Testament prophets, uh, they, they were killed because the Jews hated the word of God. Prophets spoke the word of God, whether they were Christian prophets or Old Testament prophets. They, they spoke the word of God. That's, that's what made them what they were. And, and, uh, and the Jews hated those who preached the word of God. And then finally, Paul speaks of the Jews who drove him out of Thessalonica. And I think we can safely say um, that they wanted Paul dead, but they weren't able to kill him. Uh, and so they just ran him out of town because they hated him and his message. To, to summarize, the Jews hated Jesus and they hated anyone who preached the gospel. And they didn't only hate hearing the gospel, they also hated when other people heard the gospel, which is why Paul goes on to say that they displease God and oppose all mankind. And this is how they do it. Verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their, their sins. You see, it's one thing to not want to hear the gospel, but it is a whole another thing to want not to want other people to not hear the gospel and to take steps to ensure that they don't hear the gospel. This is what Paul calls opposing all mankind. Opposing all mankind. Now, why is uh, trying to get the gospel to not go out opposing all mankind? Well, what do all of mankind need to hear? All of mankind need to hear the gospel. The free, uh, the free uh, presentation of the gospel... Um, the free offer of the gospel is to go to all human beings. And, and, and if you try to get the gospel to not go out, who are you opposing? You are opposing all of mankind, every single human being on the globe. Now, I mean, I think we can all agree that it's bad enough to displease God. But the way they're displeasing God is by opposing all of mankind. As we learn in Revelation 5, as was read this morning... God wants the offer of salvation to go to every man, woman, and child because he pl his plan, as we read, is to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he will accomplish his plan to receive worship from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the means by which he will accomplish his plan is through the making of disciples by the preaching of the gospel by the church. So seeking to stop the preaching of the gospel is to please God, it is to oppose all of mankind, and finally, it is ultimately to hate the church and its work. Because the, the church's work is preaching the gospel and making disciples. And to oppose Christ and his church is sure to warrant the righteous wrath of God to come upon you. Because Paul says that you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, I suspect that some of you are wondering where this is going, because it may seem like I'm saying that if you're not in the first group of people, those who receive and respond rightly to the word of God, then you are in the second group. And that is, in fact, uh, exactly what I am saying.
there is only two ways uh, to respond to the word of God. Either you receive it and accept it as the word of God, or you do not. You either love Jesus by putting your faith in him and living for him, or you hate Jesus by ignoring him and living for yourself. You either um, are for the preaching of the gospel and making disciples, or you are not. In short, you are either a child of God or you are an enemy of God. And I'm saying this because of the testimony of God's word, which says uh, in James 4, verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Like, it's hard to be more clear than that. You are either a friend of God or you are not. There There is no third way. Jesus himself said, whoever is not with me is against me. There is no other option. You be united to Christ by faith and be part of his mission to make disciples who worship him or you do not. So, while I suspect that most of your friends and family would not say they hate Jesus, if they do not love him as demonstrated by their faith and obedience, then they do in fact hate him, regardless of what they would say. It doesn't matter what they say if the word of God says otherwise, and it surely does. Your friends and family may say, you know, look, I have no problem with God's word. But if they have not received it and accepted it as God's word, as authoritative and trustworthy, then they, they do have a problem with it because they've not acknowledged it as trustworthy and authoritative. And while your friends and family may say, look, I have no problem with the gospel being preached. I'm not trying to stop it. If they've not joined together with the church to contribute to the making of disciples, then they do have issue with it because they're not contributing to it. And if you're not contributing to something, then you're in fact holding it back. I take no pleasure in saying this. But if your friend or family member is not a child of God, then they are an enemy of God. As I said, I take no pleasure in saying it, but I say it because I want to be sure that you know that your friends or family members or neighbors or co-workers, your, your children, your parents, whoever they may be, I want you to be sure that you know that if they do not trust in Jesus, they are not okay. It doesn't matter how nice they are. uh, And it doesn't matter how much you enjoy their company. And it doesn't matter how much they've accomplished in life. All of that will be for nothing if they die in their sins. For they will receive what they deserve for all of eternity. And that is something you must never lose sight of. I remind you of that today because we lose sight of that. You lose sight of that. And when you lose sight of that, when you forget who your friends and family members who refuse to trust in Christ really are, then you ease up in your prayers for them. And you ease up in looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them. And that would be a horrible shame because apart from the grace of God through through the gospel, there is nothing for them except the righteous wrath of God for all of eternity. So uh, I trust that this study of 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16 has done a number of things for us as we have considered these two uh, groups of people in this world. Uh, When it comes to the first group of people Paul addresses, uh, those who are children of God, I hope that you have been reminded, you who are indeed children of God, that you have been reminded of God's grace 
in revealing himself to us in his word and in enabling us to respond to it rightly by receiving and accepting it as the trustworthy word of God so that every time you open this Bible, every time you open your Bible app and you look at those words and you acknowledge them as the word of God, give thanks to God because that would not be possible apart from the work of his spirit. Right? Every time you open the Bible, every time you hear the preaching of the word of God, you remember that it's only by the grace of God that, that, that you respond and receive it as you ought to. But I trust this has also encouraged us to remember that it's through the word of God that he sanctifies us so that we will seek to be more committed to his word than we were last year or even than we were last week. And then I also pray that we have been reminded that the Christian life is not an easy life and we should be prepared to trust and obey God no matter what the circumstances. In short, I trust that this sermon has increased our gratitude to God for making us his children, part of the first group of people in this world. Uh, But as we are grateful to God for making us his children, we should never cease to remember the second group of people, those who are enemies of God. They may be our friends, maybe even our best friends. They may be our family members, our closest family members. But if they have not trusted in Christ, they are not friends of God and thus are not children of God. And that is something we must never ever forget and we must never minimize because that is the most important thing about a person it's not a person's race that matters it's not their gender it's not where they're from or what their hobbies or occupation is it's not whether they are tall or short or whether they are young or old what matters is their status before god which means we must always pray for their salvation and we must be vigilant in seeking opportunities to point them to christ and preach the gospel, that the Son of God became man, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death, and that he rose from the grave.